Good morning and welcome to another episode of Five Questions in 10 Minutes. I'm Paul Guttaker, Director of Brazos Fellows, and I'm very pleased to have with me this morning uh, Dr. David Bebbington, a good friend, a um, occasional um, professor at Baylor University, someone I've studied with, and Dr. Bebbington will be uh, joining us for Brazos Fellows class this morning. So welcome, David. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Let me just introduce you. Uh, if you don't know who David Bebbington is, um, that would surprise me. Um, he's just retired after many years of teaching as professor of history at University of Stirling in Scotland. He continues, however, as distinguished visiting professor of history at Baylor University, which is why we get to enjoy his presence this semester here in Waco. Uh, Dr. Bebbington is a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh and the Royal Historical Society. He was president of the Ecclesiastical History Society in 2006 and 2007, and he did his doctoral studies at the University of Cambridge. Um, his research, if you don't know anything about it, it focuses on the history of politics, religion, and society in Great Britain from the 18th to the 19th century, and particularly the history of the global evangelical movement. Um, if you have heard of him, it's most likely because of his famous definition of evangelicalism, uh, sometimes called the Bebbington Quadrilateral, uh, which he provided in his 1989 classic study, Evangelicalism in Modern Britain, a history from the 1730s to the 1980s. And this is a work that really put evangelicalism on the map of um, world religious history. And it's very hard to find a book on religious history that doesn't cite um, Pebbington's book. It's, it's almost impossible. Um, maybe most importantly, David is married to Eileen, they have a daughter, Anne Bebbington, and granddaughter, uh, Becky, and um, we've enjoyed many, many good evenings uh, with David and Eileen during his visits to Waco over the years. So again, thanks, David, for being, being with the Brazos Fellows this morning and being on the podcast. Our pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay, let's just jump right in. We've got five questions, 10 minutes, and we'll kick off with the first. If someone's interested in the history of evangelicalism in um, your area of research, but hasn't really read in it before... Um, where should they start? What's the first book you would hand them? We are thinking, I think, primarily of the evangelical movement in the United States. Mm. And so I think I would recommend a fairly recent but quite excellent book by Doug Sweeney called The American Evangelical Story, published in 2005, Doug is an excellent scholar and has just reached the eminence of being president of Beeson Seminary at mm -hmm. Samford University mm -hmm. in Alabama and can be trusted to give an accurate account. But that book has the special merit of being brief. Mm. I think most people want to start off with yeah. something succinct and I think that book provides it. So it encapsulates in a small compass a very great deal of understanding of the evangelical movement in all its variety in the United States. Mm, excellent. I've, I've seen this book, but I actually haven't written, uh, I'm sorry, read it yet. And so um, I have to bump it up to the top of my list. That's good. You do. Okay. Question two. Now, anyone who's taken um, courses with you at Baylor knows that one of your favorites is William Gladstone, 19th century British um, uh, politician, uh, sort of intellectual giant. Um, and he famously had what he called his four doctors, the, the figures that most shaped his life. And this, these were Aristotle, Augustine, Dante, 
and Joseph Butler, if my memory serves me right. Absolutely correct. You obviously passed the course of flying <laughs> colours. <laughs> so my question for you is, and of, of course it's a very Bebbington question, it's not asking for a quadrilateral, but rather, um, who are your four doctors? Number one is definitely the theologian Peter Taylor Forsyth, mm. a late 19th century, early 20th century congregationalist in the United Kingdom. Interestingly, I have a personal link with him because my wife's grandmother was admitted to Emmanuel Congregational Church, Cambridge, by him when he was pastor oh, there wow. at the very start of the 20th century. But his writings are quite extraordinarily powerful, stimulating, and give one to think. Mm. He wrote many books, about two dozen, some very long and very weighty, some brief, but all have the same central focus on the cross of Christ. Mm. So mm -hmm. just as Luther, for example, had a particular theological emphasis on justification by faith, mm. so in, in Forsyth, the focus is consistently on the cross as the key to understanding Christian revelation. Mm -hmm. And the way in which one can orientate one's faith. Uh, I don't believe absolutely everything Forsyth said. He's a little thinner in his ideas about the Bible, and some people could be, mm. uh, but in the, the central theological material, it is enormously mm. helpful and exciting. Mm. I cannot read a paragraph of Forsyth without being excited. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, slightly pr problematic in another way, uh, critics have said reading him is like reading or seeing fireworks in a fog. The <laughs> excitement is there but the language is sometimes mm. a little obscure. Mm -hmm. But that makes the challenge all the more, worth, more, more worthwhile. So P.T. Forsyth is my number one. Can I just ask if, if there's a book you'd say someone should start with yes. on Forsyth? Uh, oddly enough, I think about the oldest evaluation which is by W.L. Bradley mm. is the best place to start. Okay. And I think because of his fogginess it's best to read a book about him before you actually uh, jump into yeah. the pool of his own writings. Good, great. We'll look it up and I'll link to it in the, uh, in the podcast. That would be excellent. Good. Number two, and this may be surprising, Paul Tillich. Mm. Now, Paul Tillich has the reputation of being um, a very broad thinker indeed and not entirely helpful for the defence of Christian orthodoxy, and that is true. But at a certain stage in my own spiritual pilgrimage, he was exceedingly important. I went to a very conservative Baptist church in my youth, and so I was told there that Christian religion was about believing. At school, however, in traditional morning assembly, uh, a broadly Anglican ethos, I was told that religion was about doing. So I didn't know what Christian faith was, really. I had a measure of commitment, but I didn't actually know what the substance of it was. And Tillich explained that the Christian religion is about being. Mm. He, one of his books is called The New Being, and I confess it's his sermons that first helped oh, me rather than his yeah. weightier theology. Um, and so if the Christian religion is about being, which tied in, of course, with the evangelical message of you must be born again, yes. then that means that both believing and doing are part of and integral to being. Yeah. And so the three hang together. And indeed, I'd see those are a Trinitarian unity. But it's Tillich that first put me on the path of that way of looking at the Christian faith, which mm. to me remains foundational. 
and reconciles almost all problems in the Christian faith. Mm, wow. <laughs> so that's my number two. Number three really goes to a very historical historian, not somebody who has any theological profession at all, but he's the Cambridge historian Quentin Skinner. Yeah. He remains a young man to a quite extraordinary extent, but he was a young man when I was an undergraduate, but lecturing for the first time when I did at Cambridge the history of political thought. Mm -hmm. He, at that point, was writing articles, and it's his key article of 1969 that I'd regard as the important one. He was writing articles which revolutionised technique in the history of political thought. You should make it more historical by looking at the context of thinkers in the past. Yeah. So you don't just jump from mountain to mountain of thought, but you look at the foothills and the plains as well. And so that rigorous method of dealing with the history of ideas, which I have tried to mm. transfer to the history of religious ideas, yes. has been enormously important methodologically. Mm -hmm. Fourth item you'd want... Well, I think I'd probably point to an American historian, George Marsden, who I mm. now count as a friend, and uh, that's a great pleasure. And we're actually writing a book together at the moment, which should come out in a, just over a yes. month's time, yes. together with the, my other friend, Mark Knoll. But George Marsden's book, which is a celebrated one, Fundamentalism in American Culture, published yeah. first in 1980, was formative for many people including me in that it showed that the history of a dimension of the evangelical movement fundamentalism could be written in relation to its whole cultural context yeah. successfully and I have tried to do that in some of my own writings and I felt right from the time when I first encountered the book that this had an affinity for the sort of methods I would want to use. Mm. George is also very funny at times, which also helps in, in the <laughs> author. So those are probably my, my four. Yeah. There are quite a number of others, but right. those four are my, my top items. That's great. There you have it, the authoritative uh, four doctors of Dr. David Bemington. Um, okay, this next one is a rapid-fire round. Oh so I'm going to ask you in quick succession sort of um, to pick your favorite from various triads. That sounds impossible. However, we shall see. Okay. All right. First, um, Kelvin, Luther, or Cranmer? Luther. Excellent. You can explain yourself or not. Either I, is fine. I will. Um, I should choose Calvin because he's most influential on my own Christian tradition, the Baptist, but I don't. I perhaps should pick Cranmer because he came from my county, Nottinghamshire, mm. and he went to my own college at Cambridge, Jesus. So I have very personal links with him. But I choose Luther because I actually find his way of looking at the world, except at Jews, a very stimulating one. It's robust. It is um, concerned with the whole of earthly reality, and yet is highly spiritual and theological. And, uh, and I find him helpful, strongly helpful, of those three. Yep. But I'd put Forsyth ahead of any of those. Oh, yeah, well, I was going to say, when you said, when you brought up Luther with Forsyth, I should have seen uh, this choice coming. Right. All right, here's my next. George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, or Billy Graham? Yes, well, of course, I do want to say all three. Um, Spurgeon is the one whom I hear quoted most often in the United States in sermons, intriguingly, mm. and I think I'd probably go to him. However, I would qualify that. I warm to the young and middle Spurgeon mm. not the late Spurgeon because unfortunately he suffered from gout in his final years ah. and that made him 
highly ornery, both in relation <laughs> to theology, hence the downgrade controversy, which I don't think the way he conducted it was uh, wise. And he was very nasty to Gladstone. I don't approve of that. Oh, yes. Don't be mean. Don't be mean to Gladstone. All right. I'm thinking 19th century here. Uh, Wordsworth, Whitman, or Hopkins? I would definitely go for Wordsworth in terms of his intellectual significance. It doesn't mean I actually like his verse by and large, but in terms of his uh, moulding of the intellect as well as the imagination of so many people mm -hmm. subsequently in the 19th century, I put him as number one. Uh, I did him at school, and I didn't entirely like him, but I didn't appreciate quite how significant he was. It, in terms of significance, Wordsworth. Yep. Uh, Lewis, Tolkien, or Sayers? Hmm. Um, clearly, again, very significant figures. I'd actually go for Dorothy L. Sayers, uh, partly because yeah. I like her, her novels. Um, yes. I know that other, the other two are both writers of fiction, but somehow she's more palatable. Mm -hmm. um, uh, she also likes East Anglia, which I do, and <laughs> something of the ethos of yeah. place is very strong in her novels, and I warm to that. We love the uh, Lord Peter Winsey yes. novels, yes. yes. All right, finally, an important question for Texas. Barbecue or Tex-Mex? <laughs> Again, I enjoy going to restaurants that serve both. In fact, I go with certain friends to one and certain, with certain other friends to the other. However, I think I'd probably go for barbecue because whereas beef is available in the United Kingdom and I quite enjoy it, here in barbecue it is so much tastier. Mm. It is sweet, it is tender, it is all beef should be and there's plenty of it. <laughs> so I, I go for barbecue. Excellent. Okay. Rapid fire round over. Um, <laughs> let's go to the fourth question then. Um, what's a work? It could be literature, art, music, um, maybe even scholarship, but a work that you find yourself returning to that you keep sort of coming back to over the years. I would like to take this very broadly and speak of a whole phase of music. Mm. I would choose the Baroque age in music, which I find mm -hmm. as exciting spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, as I do P.T. Forsyth in the, in the more precisely theological realm. And a lot of the Baroque music is highly theological too. Mm -hmm. Think of the greatest of all the Baroque composers, J.S. Bach. Yeah. Um, He's impregnated with theology. Indeed, theology moulds his method, as recent research has shown. Um, but I would go for everybody from Gabrielli up to Handel, who lived seven years longer than Bach, so I suppose one must go as far as 1757. It is my broad conviction that good music stopped in 1757. <laughs> I really like the tension in Baroque music between yeah. the top line and the bottom line, the ground bass. Yeah. That, that, that's the thing that really excites me. But it's the secular music as well as the sacred music. Yeah. But I think it is infinitely superior to subsequent ages, all ages, in musical composition. So that's my number one. It's hard to argue with that. I've just been reading oh, this good. little book, um, uh, An Evening in the Palace of Reason. It's a book about the encounter between Bach and Frederick the Great. Oh, yeah. And just a little window into Bach's mind that it's yes. given me, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's just yes. unbelievable. Um, the intricacy, the intention, yes. the, the sort of cosmological meaning yes. that he yes. that he um, is accomplishing in the music. Yes. 
Okay, last question. We'll wrap up. Um, what's next on your reading list? What's the book you're excited to get to next? In the summer, before I came here to Baylor for the fall semester, I decided that uh, amongst lots of other jobs that I had to do, I would try to come to terms with a theologian that I know a little about, but have never really got into. And that is James W. McClendon. He died in 2000. It's probably less famous now than when he, uh, in his final years. But he's the author of a systematic theology which begins with a volume on ethics, which is an intriguing approach. That is because of his method, which is very distinctive. It's hugely indebted to the Anabaptist tradition, but also, on the other hand, to postmodern techniques. So he's a very remarkable synthesis. He was a Baptist, which adds to his appeal, and I know friends who are Baptists who would be very deeply influenced by him, and I want to find out why and how far I need to follow that path. Mm. I think he's likely to be influential because he's noted for his elaboration of what is called the Baptist vision. Now, that's essentially about the faith being properly expressed in community, Mm. which I do find very appealing indeed. Um, So, McClendon's my number one, and I hope to have absorbed him by Christmas. Oh, excellent. Well, um, as you can imagine, listeners, um, the Brazos Fellows are in for quite a treat this morning. We'll be talking about the early church and making some comparisons with modern evangelicalism. But um, the list of books and works that I'll have to link to in this post for you to follow Dr. Bebington's thoughts will be, will be long. Um, I'm sure it'll be a feast. So thanks again, David, for being with us this morning and for doing the interview. A pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you, listeners. Be sure to tune in next time for another episode of Five Questions in 10 Minutes. We'll see you then.